Welcome to the World Resources Institute podcast. I'm Lawrence McDonald. I have two very special guests with me in the studio today. Lily Ordano is an associate with the Charge Initiative in our energy program. Lily, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lawrence. And Sanjoy Sanyal is a senior associate with the Clean Energy Finance Program. Lily's based here in Washington, D.C. And Sanjoy, we're very lucky to have you with us today. You're based in India and visiting us here in Washington. Thank you, Lawrence. Good to be here. Um, I don't usually do this uh, in a show, but I think that both of you uh, are have very interesting backgrounds. Sanjoy, you are from India. You've worked with WRI for some time, and now you're focused on Africa. How does that happen? Well, actually, East Africa and India have a long, long history together. You know, <clears throat> if you travel around, walk around the streets of Nairobi and Dar es Salaam, you could be local, actually. But seriously speaking, the work is because the center of gravity of the energy access problem is in India, uh, you know, 300 million people without access to electricity, and sub-Saharan Africa, 600 million people. And uh, Lily, you are from Ghana, but you're also working uh, across all of Africa, but particularly now in uh, East Africa, on the opposite side of the continent. How does that happen? Well, so um, I come from a country which um, was the first to build a hydro plant in the whole of sub-Saharan Africa. Today, we have huge challenges with energy access, and um, it's been difficult addressing the challenge. And then I realized that um, just across us in East Africa, there's also a similar challenge, but one of a different type. So I have been interested in learning across the borders and trying to apply lessons across the different, the different countries. So I have a big question for both of you. Um, access to electricity, availability of electricity is obviously very closely tied to, to developments, tied to health, to education, uh, to having industry, to having jobs. Uh, generations of people have been working on this problem. Um, it's not solved yet. Why do you think, Lily, that it might be possible to solve this now? Do you think that we're at some kind of a tipping point where this problem that has not been solved, there are hundreds of millions of people without electricity, is that still going to be true a generation from now? Yes, I think we have a unique opportunity before us right now. I mean, before, in many years ago, the only option for electrifying populations was the grid. So everyone was waiting for the grid. But today we have advances in technology and we can access electricity through standalone systems, through mini grids. And these are at scale that can address the, the access challenge and meet people's needs. So there's really a lot of hope for that. The big example, of course, we all think of is the cell phone, right? For a long Correct. time, we thought people weren't going to get telephones, uh, phones at all until we could string copper wire from village to village to village. And in vast areas with people thinly scattered and often very poor, that wasn't going to happen today. They basically all have phones. Is that right? Right, right. right. So, so these are these are we see a huge technological leap, and um, we also see advances in in how financing is done. For instance, and I believe Sanjoy can speak more to that. But all these are making it possible to put electricity in the hands of those who need to, who need it the most. Speaking of financing, uh, Sanjoy, you have done a terrific blog post that is in turn derived from an issues brief you've done. Pay as you go solar could electrify rural Africa. Why would you need pay-as-you-go? Can't the uh, government just put out these uh, small solar grids or, or lend people money to install them? Uh, what's new about the pay-as-you-go model? 
Great question. Uh, people have always been hesitant to buy solar home systems simply because, you know, people are hesitant to buy any new technology anywhere in the world. Pay-as-you-go systems, the model actually, allow is a one-stop shop. So the company which is giving you the system is essentially renting you the system. And you pay over a period of time. So the consumer, and there's a poor consumer in, in, in rural Kenya and Tanzania, is confident that if the, pay, if the product doesn't work well, he or she would just stop paying. And the company's you know, skin is in the game. So they're paying for the electricity that comes out of it, and the system itself is is owned by a company that's essentially, uh, it's not even really leasing it to them. It's just providing this thing and then charging them for the electricity that comes out of it. For a period of time. <coughs> so, you know, uh, for many of these companies, uh, you know, it could be in perpetuity, but more, most of these com companies, you know, the system gets paid over three years. And is it your idea that this pay-as-you-go model is going to attract sufficient private investment as a business, or is it still going to need some concessional development finance from organizations like the African Development Bank or the World Bank or national development banks to give it a boost? So the interesting thing is that it has attracted both. Uh, it, you know, we, in our issue brief, we have counted 57 uh, private sector in, uh, investors, which include, you know, some very rich and successful people across the world in a, in a private sector, uh, private equity f uh, funds, you know, venture capitalists, impact investors who have invested in the space. But we must remember, and you said this earlier, that uh, energy access is a development challenge. So it is important for that donors and, and development financial institutions come in and subsidize to a certain extent the in a propagation of this model. Lily, you've done a terrific working paper, Strategies for Expanding Universal Access to Electricity Services for Development, that provides sort of an overview. As I understand it, it's kind of an umbrella, and how do we think about this? How do we gather information? How do we do analysis? And then it can lead to answers like the one that Sanjoy is uh, promoting uh, for pay-as-you-go. One of the things that you say in your paper is that it's important to understand electricity demand from the bottom up. What does that mean? How does that differ from the traditional approach? So traditionally, what electricity planners have done was to try to get an estimation of how GDP is expected to grow over, say, 10 years or 20 years, and then and then extrapolate demand based on how much GDP is supposed to grow. Now, what that did was just to f just to limit the options for electrification, mainly to se to centralize large scale options. Now, um, we are we are proposing an approach which which calls for electrification planners to look at what consumers really want. What are they asking for? Do they just want a light bulb? Do they want a light bulb and a fan? Do they want productive activities? And to tailor their responses to energy access to those specific needs. So that's what we mean when we talk about meeting the need from the bottom up. I'm always intrigued when economists talk about demand uh, when they talk about economic demand, it sort of includes the ability to pay, right? I'm not expressing demand if I can't buy it, whereas if I'm a uh, you know, poor person in a rural village, I might really want electricity, but if I don't have the ability to actually pay for it, the traditional economic view would say there's no, quote, demand. Is part of what you're doing with this bottom-up assessment is to sort of disentangle human need from so-called economic demand? 
Yeah, so what we what we define as demand then is two things. So we look at conventional demand, which is those connected to the loads. How is that supposed to grow over time? And then we look at what we call latent demand. What latent demand is is the potential for people to use electricity, even though they might not be able to afford it now. Now, to fill that gap, governments have to communicate the link between electricity access and development. So if I provide you a connection and you are not able to pay for the connection, you cannot make use of electricity. If um, you don't have a productive activity to pay me back for the electricity I supply you, I also cannot have a viable business model. So it's important that the public sector then fills in that gap where they close the gap between um, what I'm providing, electricity that I'm providing to you, and your ability to actually engage in productive activity and scale demand. So it's a bit of a chicken and an egg problem, right? If I don't have electricity, I can't, uh, well, first of all, I can't read at night. I can't, my children can't study. I maybe can't use it for cooking. So I'm cooking with, uh, with sticks or other things. So my health isn't good. But also I can't begin to have a business. My, my business options are very limited. Absolutely. So once I get electricity, my life improves, but I also then need the, the income generating activity to pay for the electricity. Yes. Sandra, what is that going to look like? I mean, when you do these uh, pay-as-you-go systems, what's a typical household going to be able to pay initially in a low-income setting for that electricity? Well, people pay anything from, you know, 50 shillings in a local, in Kenya, to 100 shillings to 3,000 shillings uh, 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 um, a month. Is this, what, a few dollars a month? Yeah, a few dollars a month. Uh, so, you know, uh, it's about, you know, half a cent, you know, uh, 50 cents a day is is what it eff- effectively comes up to be. And do even poor people have that kind of uh, income that they can manage that payment? The, the interesting thing, and you brought up this issue with demand, is that the poor people actually pay more for their electricity than you and me uh, do. And that's because they're, being, they're bu- buying you know, candles or kerosene, and you know, those prices can be very expensive. They also tend to go up when people need them the most. They're paying more for their power because Correct. they're buying these uh, suboptimal kind of power solutions. Exactly. What about batteries? A lot of people already have batteries, don't they, that they're charging from yes. simple solar installations? And most people, you know, in, in the territories that we work with, uh, you know, we, we see them more use kerosene and, and uh, candles, mostly kerosene. But yes, batteries p- people use too. And so describe to me what it would look like with a pay-as-you-go situation in a in a typical village where these services might come. When the Does an outside person come in and say, hey, we've got this great thing and we're going to put it on your, your roof or on the field next to your house and people say, yeah, that's fine, we'll pay. Is it that simple? Well, actually, yes. You know, uh, two, two, two things. One is, uh, one is you know, the, the rate at which these systems are selling, uh, you know, is, is very, uh, you know, is very uh, Im- impressive. So some of the companies are selling, you know, uh, literally 10,000 systems a month. Which is which is great actually, if you th- if you think about it, and you know, and and the way sales are done is exactly uh, exactly you know in somewhat similar to the way you described. You know, somebody comes to the village, there he has he or she has a calculator, 
uh, and you know he she asked people okay so how much do you spend for your power and they say okay so much and if you buy this for your power meaning for your kerosene kerosene probably, yeah right? and you buy this this is what you pay per per, uh, per day 50 cents a day or whatever you know a month or a week and uh, here's what you save i see and then people sign up people sign up and can these systems i imagine the houses in some of these situations are fairly simple dwellings can you put it on a roof Will yeah the roof s- yes. support it yes so the panel is put on the roof and then it leads there's a there's a wire which leads to the you know there's a charge controller because and then there is a uh, in a battery and that's probably inside your house and Lily, how is your work going to help us to advance the kinds of things that Sanjoy is describing? So um, what, what I propose in the, in the paper is that we need to create the policy environment for solar home systems through pay-as-you-go systems to, to thrive. What we have now are policies which only cater to the grid so that there's no policy environment in the off-grid space to encourage um, many grid developers or solar home system entrepreneurs to engage in the space and be comfortable that once the grid reaches where their markets are, they are going to still have a safe market. So um, we propose what planners and policymakers can do to make this, uh, to create a policy environment that supports this wide range of options. That's so interesting. I want to come back to the example of the cell phones. When the cell phones uh, began spreading across Africa, was there a similar kind of conversation about needing a supportive policy regime? Or was the technology so disruptive that it just happened in the absence of those policies? I think the cell phone case was, I think it was quite disruptive, really. I, when it initially came in, I think that the, the traditional telephone companies, nobody could really think of speaking without the telephone wires. And so everybody was used to this idea. And it was so disruptive when it came. And the ability for the prices to also drop to the rock bottom where a rural farmer in a place where there's really even no electricity could actually have access to a cell phone. I think that that was that was a marked difference. And as we see prices drop for solar home systems and as we see more innovations with small LED lights that people can use around, I think we are going to be seeing a similar thing along the line in, in the electricity access space as well. I, I was living in the Philippines in the 1990s, early 1990s, when the cell phone revolution was just reaching the Philippines and you had a, a telecom monopoly that, uh, you know, there were long waits. Even if you had money, you had to sign up for your phone and you would wait months and maybe have to pay bribes and, you know, wait at home for three days for them to install it. And then suddenly they were, I think, mostly foreign investment firms just broke open the market. They did whatever they needed to do to get into the market and the telecom monopoly lost its monopoly, which was great. Suddenly people could get phones, you know, in a day for a modest cost. But there was this resistance from the telecommunications monopoly. Do we see that with the traditional grid providers in Africa? Are they reluctant to lose their monopoly on power provision? Yeah, so that's that's a very interesting question. And that's one of the cases where you'd see something very different happening in a place like Tanzania and see the opposite happening in a place like Ghana. So um, there are cases where governments have really resisted the, the, the introduction of, of 
um, local entrepreneurs or just allowing anyone into the energy access space for fear of them taking over what the government is doing. Now in Tanzania, interestingly, the government has spearheaded and has actually promoted the off-grid market. So they are one of the very first countries to develop a policy environment for mini grids and for solar home systems to thrive. We see a similar thing happening in Kenya. Now you go across um, to West Africa and it's a very different story where you have governments having on paper, we want to have the private sector engage, but are not an allowing them to engage because there's so much monopoly in in electricity access provision. So that's 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 an interesting question and it's it plays out differently depending on where you are. It sounds like one of the things that you and others working in this sector can bring to it is knowledge of different policy regimes in different countries and which ones are helpful to Absolutely. advancing the spread of electricity. Yes. That reminds me, Sandra, I wanted to ask, you know, since you mentioned both India and Africa as having very similar challenges, do you think it's a case where even though India still has, did you say? 300. 300 million people without power and in Africa? Uh, well, sub-Saharan Africa, 600 million. 600 million. So in both cases, hundreds of millions of people. Is it the case that India is further along in solving this problem? Are there techniques coming from India to Africa? Or are the Africans in the forefront? Or is it, are they both sort of figuring it out at the same time? Where would you say the, the thought leadership and the technology and policy leadership is, is moving faster? Well, I think, you know, definitely uh, East Africa, Kenya and Tanzania and Uganda and Rwanda, uh, you know, in terms of implementing the pay-as-you-go technology has been at the forefront. And uh, definitely that's a serious contribution to the world thinking of how energy access problems need to be solved. The use of mobile technology combined with what Lily mentioned, the falling pr price of solar, and it has allowed them to you know, make significant advances in this field. But uh, in terms of, uh, in terms of you know, the other uh, uh, sort of success case, and we go into this little more in depth in, in our issue brief, is uh, the, ex ex uh, the story is actually from a neighboring country of India in South Asia called Bangladesh, you know. And Bangladesh is, uh, you know, uh, with the World Bank, initially World Bank supported program, um, the, the, has been able to install three million, three million solar home systems over a space of, uh, in a period of 10 years. And I think that's t uh, terrific also. So lessons learned in different places and, and shared across borders. Would you imagine yourself in a situation where some of what the innovations in East Africa in uh, pay-as-you-go would be something you would then be bringing back to India? Well, uh, uh, for sure, and not just India, in, in the whole of South Asia. Uh, I think uh, the ability to, uh, what uh, you know, if you look at, look at it, what pay-as-you-go does is that it allows you to collect, uh, as in the company, to collect payments from customers, millions of them, in remote rural areas you know, in an automated fashion without having to send somebody over to their houses and collect the money every month or every week. And that's a you know, significant, you know, as you can imagine. They're paying through their cell phones. They're paying through their cell phones, right? And that's a significant, as you can imagine, you know, business model innovation. Uh, you know, tr truly that, that has a space in all these countries. 
Well, I want to thank you both for joining me on the show. I learned a lot. Uh, we've only scratched the surface here. I want to encourage my listeners to uh, refer to the blog post uh, by Spencer Knowles, who will uh, write all of this up and link to the various uh, outputs that you have. Lily is the lead author in Strategies for Expanding Universal Access to Electricity Services for Development. And Sanjoy, you are the author of a terrific blog post, Pay As You Go Solar, Could Electrify Rural Africa, and that in turn uh, links to your issue brief. So thank you both very much for joining me on the show. Thank, thank you, you very Lawrence. much. Until next time, I'm Lawrence McDonald. This is the World Resources Institute podcast. You'll find us on Stitcher, on iTunes, and at uh, worldresources.org. Thanks very much for listening.